This morning we are continuing our, our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. And Sermon on the Mount is most well-known teaching um, of Jesus. But at times it is least understood, quite mistaken. But we believe that Jesus' teaching in this particular section of the Bible has a power to transform not just the externally, but inside out. The, the theme of uh, the Sermon on the Mount is in one phrase. It's Christian counterculture. And what do I mean by that? Because the Jesus values and ways are radically different, his teachings on the disciples is basically read too radically different, not only from the secular world only, but even from the religious people. And should we say even church culture as well. Why is that? <clears throat> Personally, this portion of the passage from the Bible has impacted my, my life and changed my perspective forever. In, in some sense, because the pseudo-Christianity is rampant in the TV and media and in every corner that we turn, I, I think this teaching has much more value to us. And last week, as an introduction, we said Jesus' teaching is about really what it means to be a Christian a portrait of believers. But believers not in the sense that, that everybody lives together and I happen to have a religion, but Jesus' world is a different realm of world. And oftentimes, um, when oversimplistically, people will say Christian life is a believing in Jesus Christ so that we could go to heaven. No, actually... What Jesus is proclaiming is the gospel, the salvation begins now. The heaven is actually not change, not only change of environment, but actually change of our self, of our being. The truth Christianity has a lot to do with the change of Inside out. Why is that? When you go to heaven, we tend to think about the beautiful things and pretty things, uh, very joyful things, and there's no more tears. All that environment is perfect. Yes, it is perfect because God is there. The presence of God is there. And there is no sin or darkness in God. But if we do not change and enter into God's kingdom, we bring in our own sins and depravity and crooked hearts. The message of Jesus for the kingdom of God is actually to live our life under the kingship, or should we say sovereign rule or reign of God. And, and Matthew uses the word Kingdom of heaven. And actually it's the same thing. 
But it is interesting to, to re- recognize that Matthew was choice of word were intentional. When you hear the kingdom of heaven, you know that it is not earthly political kingdom. But the reality is this. The kingdom of America, the kingdom of Venezuela, the kingdom of China will someday be turned upside down and the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven will come. In the future sense that to live in the kingdom, we ought to be kingdom people, people that belong to God. People that who are being sanctified and that God's, by God's grace, he will bring us to the perfect state that we don't struggle with sin anymore. So think about this. There is a phrase the theological theologians will say that kingdom of God is, is here already, but not yet. When Jesus came, his reign began in earth. And we are actually living in kingdom now and already. But yet it is just a little bit of a taste. Kingdom, kingdom of God is not yet. When we go to see Jesus to face, face to face. And actually the heaven is temporal state the where our souls and spirits go before we get resurrected body. So in the eternity, actually, we don't go to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes and brings the kingdom of heaven and the new heavens and earth, and then we will reign with Christ forever and then ever. So when you hear the word that already and not yet, there is a tension. Why? Because the present reality looks like reality. And the spiritual ideas and Jesus' teaching sounds so far away. Some conceptually idealistic world out there. But believe it or not. Jesus followers, Christ followers are to live by faith and to live in the kingdom, the sovereign reign of God. And hence the word Christ, I mean Christian counterculture, the radically different value and way of life. And notice this, there are a few things that uh, we will look at as an overview, in verse uh, thir- 3 to 12, uh, gives us eight Beatitudes. So we want to look at overview as a whole. And today we're going to focus on first Beatitude, in verse 3 only. For, number one, these eight Beatitudes are not descriptions of some elite Christians, but of portrait of All Christians, all Christians ought to be like that because this is what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom. It is also, it's not eight types of Christians. And some people 
uh, receive uh, one blessing, and some people are meek, and the other Christians are poor in spirit, and some people are merciful. No. It is one whole, inclusive, comprehensive blessing, comprehensive portrait of what Christian ought to be. It's the same thing with the gift of the Holy, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the Greek text and even English words, Galatians 5, 2, 20, uh, 22 and 23 will say the singular word, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. It's not a good English, isn't it? But it is not fruits. Why? Because of one fruit that has a multi-dimensional aspects of Christ's character, Holy Spirit's bearing fruit, is a love that in one side it looks like joy, and the other side looks like patience, and patience love, self-control love, gentleness love, but one. In the same way, eight beatitude is not something that each person specializes. Every Christ follower, citizen of God's kingdom, ought to look like this. Number two, these are not imperatives for salvation, but indicatives of a generational, regenerated heart. This is really important. As we are understanding and reading and studying through the Sermon on the Mount, the first portion of Beatitude is not actually a command that we do so that we could receive salvation. We will understand the text very, uh, in a wrong way. We need to understand that because you are saved, because you are Christ's follower, you ought to be what you are meant to be. This is a depiction of what we already are. But obviously, there's a sanctification, spiritual progression and growth is there. So am I, you might be asking, some of you asking, so is it wrong for me to try to be uh, poor in spirit? Yes or no? Because if you are putting your own efforts and try to be poor in spirit, the paradoxical things will happen. You will be very proud of being humble, <laughs> being poor. So this is actually, much of it is a sovereign grace of God. This is a work of God. But that does not mean the human responsibility of reacting, responding with faith and obedience is not necessary. So in that sense, it is okay for us to continually embrace and live out. And we're going to do the application at the end as well. Number three, these are not natural tendencies, but transformed dispositions produced by, produced by God's grace and through the Spirit's work on us. Some people are gentle. Blessed are the meek. 
And we might say, oh, I'm really hot-tempered. I, I, I get, I have a problem with anger. So lucky for that guy, because he seems so nice and gentle. If you look at each person's heart, and there is a sinful depravity. Jeremiah 79 says that the, the heart of human is desperately sick. Who could understand? It's wicked because of our sin, fallen nature. So our temperament looks like, appear to be that way, but in the, in the heart of hearts, if you look at the, the roots of that person, sometimes the people who are Gentle, appear to be gentle in personal and innate character, innate support, uh, the temperament. There's a way of protecting themselves. People pleasing, enabling, those things can happen. The people who are poor in, in spirit, oh, that person is always looks very humble, naturally humble. No, that's really not the beatitude, poor, spiritual poverty. Because every single beatitude is a work of the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed and in our inner transformed. Number four, and this is the last one. I'm going to keep it simple. These are not in random order but in spiritual progression from one to another, being interrelated as God's sanctification process in us. So maybe we should be intentional and paying attention to this scripture in a more of a a wise way of looking at not only the big picture, understanding the interrelations. This is what I mean. Sermon on the Mount is three chapters, five, six, and seven of Matthew's gospel. But verse one and two is an introduction. Verse 7, 28, 29 is a conclusion, response of those people, the people who received. But there are three main parts. And notice this. It begins with transformation of character, being, not doing. And it, it fleshes out to the Christian righteousness, is which is doing. And those are the, the uh, specific commands that Jesus will uh, give us. But unless we understand and we look at it uh, being first, we will look like, Person who are looking for external righteousness again by mechanical obedience to it. The key idea, even doing all this, is what type of person, character, will naturally do that. And for example, in Christian righteousness, and Jesus will quote in the Old Testament Mosaic law. You heard that. You shall not murder. 
the external thing. But Jesus mentions, but I will tell you, anyone who hates a brother or sister has already committed murder. The righteousness is not an external. I could hate as much as you want, as long as I don't do the deed. That's external righteousness, which is Phariseeism. But Jesus mentioned that your heart must be changed and transformed by the grace of God. And you need to get rid of not only the deeds, but the deep seas of hatred. And we'll, we'll have a lot of uh, time into that and have a lot of fun studying through that as well. Very humbling uh, section of the passage as well. Challenging. And lastly, Jesus is actually the Christian choice is actually testing of our heart. Why? Because we could say, I believe. It's easy to say, make a decision and say, I do. I want to follow you. I have decided to follow you. And Jesus is, before he closes his teaching, here is spiritual audit for you. And he gives two rows, and he gives two houses, and two ways of following Jesus. Will you choose? The bottom line is obedience. Will you choose obedience? The full-blown obedience. Don't say just you do. You believe. The mental believism is actually the enemy's lie. Evil ones lie. There are so many people who would do religious things. And because we tend to intellectually believe, conceptually believe that we belong to the kingdom of God. No, actually, when we choose the narrow gate, narrow road, which will lead to eternal life, the many will follow the wide gate and wide road, which will lead to destruction. Okay, how about the attitude itself? Christian character being, focusing on that, First, unless you are poor in spirit, we'll study on that a little deeper today, we cannot mourn for our spiritual state. Unless we have spiritual poverty and not only confession of our spiritual poverty, but contrition of that as an repentant heart, we cannot be meek. Be meek means, being meek means that, that it's, it doesn't mean weakness, but it's a strength under control. What kind of control? Control of the humility. God has broken down our self. Stiff neck die. So we actually, ourselves are surrendered. We're not fighting with God anymore. We're not fighting for number one seed anymore. Have you seen those, uh, you know, a lot of uh, social media posts? There's a, a dogs and cats, right? 
the big gigantic dog is just sitting down and the little cat is trying to fight, right? So one bite of that dog, of the dog on the cat, will kill the dog, kill the cat. Oh, imagine the, the picture is a little bit more severe then. The big lion takes a little cub with his teeth. He picks it up, the cub. These are the teeth that tear apart zebras and all the big animals, including human beings. One bite. But he gently controls the strength. And that's meekness. We'll talk about that a little more. And then when we become meek, by the time when we are dealt with a stubborn self, in self-insisting stubborn self, are emptied, we begin to hungry for the right things, hungry for God's righteousness. Hungry for justice. Not because of our angst and our preference, but because we see what God desires. And then the last four is actually the outcome of overflow of first four. Because we're poor, we know our desperate brokenness. We are messed up. Even at our best days, we're sinful. Our motives are always mixed so when you see others who are in sin, who are in their brokenness, we become merciful. When we are mourning for our sin, our heart is pure, utterly sincere. When we are meek, we don't have a stubborn self insisting our ways. We could be finally peacemakers. God's tool for reconciliation. When we are hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will gladly choose suffering over comfort for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake. But it all begins with beatitude number one. But there are so many misconceptions of uh, spiritual poverty. So let's do this. What does it not mean before we look at what does it really mean? And then implication of that. The first one. But today, since it's the beginning of uh, Beatitude, starting next week, we will not read the whole Beatitude. Allow me to read one more time. I thought having heard that progression and inter- interrelation, it might be helpful for us. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before we go into the very to number one, Let's look at the word blessed first. The Greek word makarios. It can be translated happy or blessing. So the modern translation, some of the modern translation will say something like happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are like that. But I think I would agree with some theologians like John Stott will say that would be wrong. Translation. Why is that? Makarios, although, although it could mean happiness, what is presented here is not a personal state of pleasure, subjective happiness, but objective opinion of God as a who is blessed and who is not blessed. So, for example, when we look for personal happiness, it's an American dream. I need to feel uh, affluent and comfortable today. Why is it good to mourn? Or even the, today's Beatitude sounds so countercultural. The opposite of American value. What it means to be strong man and woman. So when we look at this blessed, the word blessing is God says, you are blessed. You might not be happy at the moment because of trials, because you fight for joy in God rather than fight for comfort. Capitulating into worldly values. Okay, without further ado, what does... What does poor in spirit does not mean, here's the first one, it does not mean material poverty or voluntary poverty. Uh, maybe we'll just dwell on that just quickly. Um, because Luke's gospel omits the word in spirit. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. So the uh, people, especially the commentaries or scholars who do not have much of a trust in validity of the New Testament, they will say one of them is wrong. Either Matthew got it wrong and put in his ideas, or Luke is wrong. But obviously, because of the the societal, the social gospel idea, they will say, Luke is right, typically. So p- people who are poor, uh, Matthew, maybe he put his ideas into it. 
And actually, if we look at any, any passage in the Bible, we need to understand in context. New Testament is sitting in the context of Old Testament. So when you look at Old Testament, the poor is described as righteous. Why? If you bribe and if you go on to the unjust things, and you could become, you could be saved and delivered from your poverty. But the Old Testament saints who stuck to the way of the Lord, to the wise, the wisdom of the Lord, are equated with material poverty and spiritual poverty as well. So you know, in some sense, New Testament sense, both Matthew and Luke are saying the same thing because in the first century, they, they would understand the text as spiritual poverty and top poverty and materialistic things go hand in hand. Not nowadays. Why is it? If you look at typically the people who are poor, they're poor, and ask questions, what are you hungry for? They don't say, well, I'm hungry for the righteousness of God. Righteous living. Um, they would say, readily say, I'm hungry for money. Do you have some money? In our hearts, when we are financially struggling, that, that will be the gospel for us as well. On the other hand, Catholic theologians advocate, and typically young rich ruler, of selling all the possessions and give it to the poor, and took it literally as a symbol of godly life. And they actually, many monks, sold their property and gave it to the poor and became lifetime monks. The noble idea is good, but what happens is voluntary poverty, materialistic poverty, doesn't translate into deep sense of spiritual poverty that Christ is advocating here, teaching us here. Number two, it does not mean outlook from low self-esteem, self-pity, or self-condemnation. You know, there are the days that you feel like a loser and you meet some friends and they're all doing well and they're promoting and their business doing well and you come home I failed this and that well pastors have that too right so doing this church plan for seven and a half years I go to a pastor's gathering and then some of the pastors who planted the church they'll say how many people do you have uh they would have 200, 300, or they will continue to grow. And I, for me to say that uh, we have more kids than adults, <laughs> we do. Altogether, maybe 110, 100, but they don't show up every Sunday because of you know, babies and early, the struggling life stage of early parenting. I come home and feeling low, turning on the blues music. 
turn down the <laughs> turn down the lights a little bit. A lot of self pity. That's not spiritual poverty. Number three, it does not mean lack of personality, vitality, zeal, or courage. Especially for those of you who are just very extroverted and just burst with passion. You know, you could feel those people's presence. When, when Henry emails that there's a, so many exclamation marks, I have to count like, I love Henry's, or people like Henry's, enthusiasm, natural enthusiasm. And they read this, oh, I have to be poor, so I'm not going to say much. I look down a little bit and be quiet. (laughs) It's a false transformation, pseudo-transformation. Externalism again. Appear to be not inner righteousness, inner transformation. Lastly, it does not mean noble effort to be humble. Many of us, including me, have this. I really think my opinion of it is right here. My quiet time's been going well, and I haven't done any stupid, evil, sinful things, at least intentionally. I haven't missed church that many, that many times, and I didn't yell at the kids for a few weeks. But when you appear to be with others, you want to humble yourself. Have a noble effort. What what is the difference here? You become self-conscious when you do that. The work of the Holy Spirit is you're actually forgetful. You don't think about yourself. Humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think yourself less. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, knowing that, what then does it mean to be poor in spirit? The first and foremost, it means a deep sense of spiritual poverty and helplessness. And translating into, we acknowledge our utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Let me put some uh, words of caution for those of us that have been Christian for many years. We would heartily agree, oh, when I became a Christian, I was really messed up. I declared spiritual bankruptcy before God. I was telling everybody else also too. But I've been Christian for 10 years or 20 years I actually don't feel the same way. That is the enemy's lies and and slippery slope. We begin to think about, actually, we could do something, bring righteousness. It's called a self-righteousness. Look at Psalm 34, verse 6 and 8. Verse 6 says, This poor man cried. This is an example of Old Testament poor man. It's actually, this is a spiritually poor man cried, 
And the Lord heard him and saved him out of his, all his troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Do you feel spiritually bankrupt today? Do you know that that is your heart condition? Without much of a rationalizing, if you don't feel that way, your concept of spiritual poverty is skewed. But if you feel that without much of a pride, yes, I know I'm bankrupt. If I don't go to God, I don't have any resources. And that's why I'll go to God in the morning. That's why I pray. That's, that's why I read scripture. That's why I go to men's group, women's group. That's why I go to home groups. Because I'm bankrupt spiritually. Number two, uh, each, each uh, definition, I want to compare and contrast because of countercultural thing. The world is saying common presupposition of all self-help books is this. You have the power within to change yourself. Self-reliance. I googled self-reliance. There's two, 20 million comes out. Starting with Ralph, Maldo. Somebody help me. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Book of self on self-reliance. It's, it sounds so strong, but it is actually spiritually deadly. Jesus is saying, everyone in heaven is poor in spirit. Everyone who belongs to the kingdom of God acknowledges his or spirit, her spiritual bankruptcy. Secondly, it means complete absence of self-reliance and self-conceit. Eugene Peterson, this is a paraphrase, modern paraphrase. I love the way that he translates the, the modern nuance of that feel to it. The verse 3 that we're studying, he translates it, he paraphrases it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your robe. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. So some of you have been struggling, and there's a lot of trial in your heart, in your life. But we ought to be very careful, the enabling factor, uh, modern language. But typically what it means that we save that person emotionally, before he or she hits rock bottom, to look up to God, and all I have is God. That is the blessed condition. That is a darkness that is actually bright, that we don't see. And that's spiritually discerning. And I used to encourage, you know, when I was in the student ministry, the, the student will say something like, oh, 
I'm too short, I'm not athletic, and I do this, I do that. And I, I used to say, look at it. I'll give you one or two, you know, it's ten strengths that I see in you, trying to encourage the person. You know what I do nowadays? I agree. <laughs> you, have, you have really, you know, you're too short and you wanna, you're not balanced. You're not good at athleticism. Well, who will you look to now? Will you look for self-help books? Or will you look to God? And even in our marriage, oh, I heard for those of you whose marriage is rocky, it's just a day-to-day, you feel like it's just ongoing turmoil of your heart. Look to God. Of course, I'm not negating the fact that we need to seek help from our brothers and sisters and counselors. But in our deep in our heart, do we think that our hope comes from people or from God? In a contrasting world than Jesus, American idea of strength is reliance. Um, when you have a little kids, you watch a lot of PBS, right? Kids show. And there's a kids show called Arthur and Friends. And then I noticed the song will be very naive and good and healthy. But when I did to the captions and I begin to read the words, the, the song ends with believe in yourself. That's the place to start. From young days, the American idealism of what it means to be strong is to be self-reliant. And no wonder our Christianity is messed up. Because even in Christian life, trying to follow Christ, we're trying to be self-reliant rather than God-reliant. Jesus is saying in John 15 verse 5, You can do nothing apart from me. Abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. Don't misread that. Obviously, we could get up and we could eat and we could drive. A lot of things that we can do. What Jesus is saying, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, anything that is an eternal value, that God sees it as that's going to stay. Doesn't come from us. And when you begin to realize, I cannot do anything spiritually fruitful. I don't have anything, any resources. So I need to stay in the vine, in Jesus. And then we begin to understand spiritual poverty. And lastly, it means to be broken from our self-righteousness and further attempts to be self-righteous. And I think this is a good example that Jesus actually gives himself. Gives himself. He gives a story and parable, what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Luke chapter 18, verse 19 and uh, 
below. Jesus says, uh, he, the Gospel of Luke writes, verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in, in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extorters, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me put a little cultural context there. When Jewish people, unlike us, we, we would bow down and hold our hands. This is our way of praying. In Jewish prayer, they would stand. And oftentimes, they would look up to pray. Jewish way of praying. So Pharisee, although that's their custom to pray, raising their hand, maybe praying even loud, Thank God I'm not like those sinners. Thank God that I give tithe of everything that I receive. I twice, fast twice a, a week. A list of things. Self-righteousness. And spiritual poverty, what, what Jesus mentioned about tax collector, notice that he's standing far off. He's actually knowing and acknowledging his utter helpless state of his sinful state before God. He cannot look up, although that's Jewish way of praying. And he beats his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Brothers and sisters, that's the prayer that every single true Christ follower ought to pray on our best days. Not the ones that we feel just terribly messed up and we've blown up and we, we have committed terrible sins against our children, against our spouses. Then we become miserable and pray. No, on the best day that you have helped so, much, so many people, your quiet times are going well and you are in, respected by your peers at church, God, be merciful to me. Why? Because that is our state. Unless God has mercy on me, every single sin that we have, including hidden sins, hidden motives, will be judged by God. 
God, out of his own love for us, reached down and gave Jesus' blood to apply on us. Come, my son. In the world, differences, all religions agree on this. Man reaching God through his or her own self-effort, religiously, or doing good merits. Jesus, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. So in closing... I want us to be um, more mindful about what it, what do it mean? What does it mean for us to embrace this foundational beatitude and our spiritual turning point for us and living it out? Number one, Martin Lloyd Jones' advice is a look at God. I, I totally agree with him. Because when we begin to look into ourselves, we become despair and there's no hope in there. And we rationalize. Actually, at least I'm better than him, better than her. I'm not so bad. But when we begin to pay attention to God, and God in his holiness, and everyone who encountered God experienced spiritual poverty instantaneously. And Isaiah, God shows up and the vision opens up and the seraphim and, and cherubim, the angelic beings are circling around and with six wings, one, two, two, he, they cover his eyes, you know, uh, out of the respect and adoration and fear of the Lord, and with two covers his feet, shame, and with two wings he's fl- they're flying, and constantly saying, "Holy, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of Almighty." When Isaiah saw that, his initial response was. Woe is me. I am doomed. I am lost. So would you look at God and continually stay and looking at God? And God has revealed himself. And you will encounter God of the Bible and his holiness as you read an open-minded, it's just adult reading that you will encounter God. And as you take a walk, what you have read, you could reflect on it. And then the reason why we practice solitude and silence today is that it's the time that we get rid of these distractions and noises, not only externally, but internally, to sit before God, that God will show us. Number two, lest we become helpless and sit on 
our own pull of brokenness, not going anywhere. We need to look to the cross. The great news, news is that no matter how messed up, broken you are, including your family backgrounds, upbringings, and your current system, uh, life with your, your wife and your husband, your work and your profession, whatever that is, God's power is greater to forgive, to restore, to come. Why? Because God has given his best gift to us, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who shed a blood for each one of us, for our own brokenness. So whenever we see, look at the cross, do you remember the hymn? The when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. All the vain things that charm me most. And my riches gain. I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. You could come to the cross today. You don't have to prepare yourself because the sick people need physicians. The people who are broken need a savior, a deliverer. Jesus is waiting for each one of us. And one of the most helpful things for me is a little book called The Calvary Road. And Roy Hessian says this about looking to the cross. Lord, bend that proud and stiff-necked eye. Help me to bow the head and die. Beholding him on Calvary who bowed his head for me. When we look at Christ's brokenness, voluntary brokenness to unto his Father, nothing is to too painful for us to, to swallow our pride and humble ourselves, surrender our rights to God. And it, it's incredible. Galatians 2.20, Therefore I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Christ, but Christ lives in me. Laureation says, it's very imagery. I'm a very visual person. This helps me a lot. See in the Christ lives in me is a broken eye. Stiff necked eye is broken. Our neck is broken. And finally, we are bowing to God, Christ, in submission, in voluntary surrender. I close with this final thought. Let's ask Jesus to hear our humble cry. And I'm not going to say too much on this because I'm running out of time already. Um, but I'm going to introduce you the hymn that came to me and I was ringing in my ears all throughout the week is a hymn entitled of Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Fanny Crosby is a prolific hymn writer who wrote more than 8,500 hymns. Many of them are so well known. If I say those uh, sing some, some of them that you will even remember. Blessed assurance. 
Jesus is mine. To God be the glory. But this one is kind of personal and different to it. Why? Fanny Crosby became blind when he was six weeks old because of malprotection, uh, the practice of the uh, doctor. And then later on, she became a teacher. As a blind man, she became a follower of Christ. And then she wrote just tremendously powerful words. And later on, when she became famous, there was an interview. A newspaper reporter asked her, if God could answer your prayer, anything, would you ask God to heal your blindness so you could see? Without hesitation, without losing a bit, Fanny Crosby said, oh no, this is the most blessing that I ever received. Because of this, I see God. Because of this, I see blessings in the eternal life. She's not trying to appear to be humble in that sense, right? It is true. Listen to these words. Listen to the, feel the words that exudes with the spiritual poverty we've been expounding conceptually. She writes, Pass me not. O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. Let me at thy throne of mercy find a sweet relief. Kneeling there in deep contrition, help my unbelief. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others that thou art calling, do not pass me by. There was another blind man, Bartimaeus. When Jesus and his disciples are going to Jericho, and people heard that Jesus is coming, and he's notorious, he's well-known blind beggar sitting on the street. When, they, when he heard that Jesus, the healer, came by. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Once again, the, context, the cultural context, son of David was reference to the Messiah because the Messiah will be born in the house of David and he will reign forever and ever. So he knew that Messiah has come. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. People around him and disciples, be quiet. And the scripture says, all the more he's louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus came and asked him, what do you want? Brothers and sisters, today, you might not have a crisis in your life. And I don't in my life, too. The embracing spiritual poverty is that hearing, asking God to hear, Jesus to hear, our humble cry, and really asking, you 
have hope and mercy and grace and power. And then you're calling your others. When you're passing by, do not pass me by. I don't have a merit. I don't have anything to demand you. All I could do is cry this humble cry. Let's bow our heads. I do not know personally, but I have a hunch that the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and touched the area that that you need to be touched. I want to encourage you. Do not put out that prompting. And whatever is necessary, come to the cross and look at God and ask that, that cry that humble cry to God. And if you want to personally talk to me after the service, I would love to and with you and pray for you. And maybe some of you, as you're going back to men's group, women's group, and home group, you need to share before the enemy takes that seed of faith, seed of the word away, and confess it, and ask for prayer, and humble yourself. Father, thank you for this good news a very uh, the opposite of what <clears throat> world uh, promotes and tell us and even in commercials we now see it lord to see that we are sinner our sinner is actually blessing to us because the kingdom of heaven belongs to us when we don't have nothing we're poor but we have everything in you. And I pray that our church will be awakened to embrace our own brokenness. And God, this is something that we cannot do or manipulate to do at all. So hear our humble cry. And when in others thou, you are calling giving fresh water, do not pass us by. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.